Book Two, Part Two of the Annals by Publius Cornelius Tacitus, Volume One. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Graham Redman. The Annals by Publius Cornelius Tacitus, Volume One. Translated by Alfred John Church and William Jackson Broadrib. Book Two, A.D. sixteen to nineteen, Part Two. All this was known to Caesar. He was acquainted with their plans, their positions, with what met the eye and what was hidden, and he prepared to turn the enemy's stratagems to their own destruction. To Caius Tubero, his chief officer he assigned the cavalry and the plain. His infantry he drew up so that part might advance on level ground into the forest, and part clamber up the earthwork which confronted them. He charged himself with what was the specially difficult operation, leaving the rest to his officers. Those who had the level ground easily forced a passage. Those who had to assault the earthwork encountered heavy blows from above as if they were scaling a wall. The general saw how unequal this close fighting was, and having withdrawn his legions to a little distance, ordered the slingers and artillerymen to discharge a volley of missiles and scatter the enemy. Spears were hurled from the engines, and the more conspicuous were the defenders of the position, the more the wounds with which they were driven from it. Caesar, with some Praetorian cohorts, was the first, after the storming of the ramparts, to dash into the woods. There they fought at close quarters. A morass was in the enemy's rear, and the Romans were hemmed in by the river or by the hills. Both were in a desperate plight from their position. Valour was their only hope, victory their only safety. The Germans were equally brave, but they were beaten by the nature of the fighting and of the weapons, for their vast host in so confined a space could neither thrust out nor recover their immense lances, or avail themselves of their nimble movements and lithe frames, forced as they were to a close engagement. Our soldiers, on the other hand, with their shields pressed to their breasts, and their hands grasping their sword-hilts, struck at the huge limbs and exposed faces of the barbarians, cutting a passage through the slaughtered enemy, for Arminius was now less active, either from incessant perils, or because he was partially disabled by his recent wound. As for Ingiomerus, who flew hither and thither over the battlefield, it was fortune rather than courage which forsook him. Germanicus, too, that he might be the better known, took his helmet off his head, and begged his men to follow up the slaughter, as they wanted not prisoners, and the utter destruction of the nation would be the only conclusion of the war. And now, late in the day, he withdrew one of his legions from the field to entrench a camp, while the rest till nightfall glutted themselves with the enemy's blood. Our cavalry fought with indecisive success. Having publicly praised his victorious troops, 
Caesar raised a pile of arms with the proud inscription, The army of Tiberius Caesar, after thoroughly conquering the tribes between the Rhine and the Elbe, has dedicated this monument to Mars, Jupiter, and Augustus. He added nothing about himself, fearing jealousy, or thinking that the consciousness of the achievement was enough. Next he charged Statinius with making war on the angry Verii, but they hastened to surrender, and as suppliants, by refusing nothing, they obtained a full pardon. When, however, summer was at its height, some of the legions were sent back over land into winter quarters, but most of them Caesar put on board the fleet and brought down the river Amisia to the ocean. At first the calm waters merely sounded with the oars of a thousand vessels or were ruffled by the sailing ships. Soon a hailstorm bursting from a black mass of clouds while the waves rolled hither and thither under tempestuous gales from every quarter, rendered clear sight impossible and the steering difficult, while our soldiers, terror-stricken and without any experience of disasters on the sea, by embarrassing the sailors or giving them clumsy aid, neutralized the services of the skilled crews. After a while wind and wave shifted wholly to the south, and from the hilly lands and deep rivers of Germany came with a huge line of rolling clouds a strong blast, all the more frightful from the frozen north which was so near to them, and instantly caught and drove the ships hither and thither into the open ocean, or on islands with steep cliffs, of which hidden shoals made perilous. These they just escaped, with difficulty, and when the tide changed, and bore them the same way as the wind, they could not hold to their anchors or bail out the water which rushed in upon them. Horses, beasts of burden, baggage, were thrown overboard in order to lighten the hulls which leaked copiously through their sides, while the waves too dashed over them. As the ocean is stormier than all other seas, and as Germany is conspicuous for the terrors of its climate, so, in novelty and extent, did this disaster transcend every other, for all around were hostile coasts, or an expanse so vast and deep that it is thought to be the remotest shoreless sea. Some of the vessels were swallowed up, many were wrecked on distant islands, and the soldiers, finding there no form of human life, perished of hunger, except some who supported existence on carcasses of horses washed on the same shores. Germanicus's trireme alone reached the country of the Chorsi. Day and night on those rocks and promontories he would incessantly exclaim that he was himself responsible for this awful ruin, and friends scarce restrained him from seeking death in the same sea. At last, as the tide ebbed and the wind blew favourably, the shattered vessels, with but few rowers, or clothing spread as sails, some towed by the more powerful, returned, and Germanicus, having speedily repaired them, sent them to search the islands. Many by that means were recovered. The angry Verii, who had lately been admitted to our alliance, 
restored to us several whom they had ransomed from the inland tribes. Some had been carried to Britain and were sent back by the petty chiefs. Every one, as he returned from some far distant region, told of wonders, of violent hurricanes and unknown birds, of monsters of the sea, of forms half-human, half-beast-like, things they had really seen, or in their terror believed. Meanwhile the rumoured loss of the fleet stirred the Germans to hope for war, as it did Caesar to hold them down. He ordered Gaius Silius, with thirty thousand infantry and three thousand cavalry, to march against the Chatai. He himself, with a larger army, invaded the Marsai, whose leader, Malavendus, whom we had lately admitted to surrender, pointed out a neighbouring wood, where, he said, an eagle of one of Verus's legions was buried and guarded only by a small force. Immediately troops were dispatched to draw the enemy from his position by appearing in his front, others to hem him in his rear and open the ground. Fortune favoured both. So Germanicus, with increased energy, advanced into the country, laying it waste and utterly ruining a foe who dared not encounter him, or who was instantly defeated wherever he resisted, and, as we learnt from prisoners, was never more panic-stricken. The Romans, they declared, were invincible, rising superior to all calamities, for having thrown away a fleet, having lost their arms, after strewing the shores with the carcasses of horses and of men, they had rushed to the attack with the same courage, with equal spirit, and, seemingly, with augmented numbers. The soldiers were then led back into winter quarters, rejoicing in their hearts at having been compensated for their disasters at sea by a successful expedition. They were helped, too, by Caesar's bounty, which made good whatever loss any one declared he had suffered. It was also regarded as a certainty that the enemy were wavering and consulting on negotiations for peace, and that, with an additional campaign next summer, the war might be ended. Tiberius, however, in repeated letters, advised Germanicus to return for the triumph decreed him. He had now had enough of success, enough of disaster. He had fought victorious battles on a great scale. He should also remember those losses which the winds and waves had inflicted, and which, though due to no fault of the general, were still grievous and shocking. He, Tiberius, had himself been sent nine times by Augustus into Germany, and had done more by policy than by arms. By this means the submission of the Sugambri had been secured, and the Suevi with their king Maruboduus had been forced into peace. The Cherusci too and the other insurgent tribes, since the vengeance of Rome had been satisfied, might be left to their internal feuds. When Germanicus requested a year for the completion of his enterprise, Tiberius put a severer pressure on his modesty by offering him a second consulship, the functions of which he was to discharge in person. He also added that if war must still be waged, 
he might as well leave some materials for renown to his brother Drusus, who, as there was then no other enemy, could win only in Germany the imperial title and the triumphal laurel. Germanicus hesitated no longer, though he saw that this was a pretense, and that he was hurried away through jealousy from the glory he had already acquired. About the same time, Libo Drusus, of the family of Scribonii, was accused of revolutionary schemes. I will explain somewhat minutely the beginning, progress, and end of this affair, since then first were originated those practices which for so many years have eaten into the heart of the state. Fermius Catus, a senator, an intimate friend of Libo's, prompted the young man, who was thoughtless and an easy prey to delusions, to resort to astrologers' promises, magical rites, and interpreters of dreams, dwelling ostentatiously on his great-grandfather Pompeius, his aunt Scribonia, who had formerly been wife of Augustus, his imperial cousins, his house crowded with ancestral busts, and urging him to extravagance and debt, himself the companion of his profligacy and desperate embarrassments, thereby to entangle him in all the more proofs of guilt. As soon as he found enough witnesses, with some slaves who knew the facts, he begged an audience of the emperor, after first indicating the crime and the criminal through Flaccus Vescularius, a Roman knight who was more intimate with Tiberius than himself. Caesar, without disregarding the information, declined an interview, for the communication, he said, might be conveyed to him through the same messenger Flaccus. Meanwhile he conferred the praetorship on Libo, and often invited him to his table, showing no unfriendliness in his looks or anger in his words, so thoroughly had he concealed his resentment and he wished to know all his sayings and doings, though it was in his power to stop them, till one Junius, who had been tampered with by Libo for the purpose of evoking by incantations spirits of the dead, gave information to Fulcinius Trio. Trio's ability was conspicuous among informers, as well as his eagerness for an evil notoriety. He at once pounced on the accused, went to the consuls, and demanded an inquiry before the senate. The senators were summoned with a special notice that they must consult on a momentous and terrible matter. Libo, meanwhile, in mourning apparel and accompanied by ladies of the highest rank, went to house after house, entreating his relatives and imploring some eloquent voice to ward off his perils which all refused, on different pretexts, but from the same apprehension. On the day the Senate met, jaded with fear and mental anguish, or, as some have related, feigning illness, he was carried in a litter to the doors of the Senate House, and, leaning on his brother, he raised his hands and voice in supplication to Tiberius, who received him with unmoved countenance. The emperor then read out the charges and the accuser's names, with such calmness as not to seem to soften or aggravate the accusations. 
Besides Trio and Catus, Fonteius Agrippa and Caius Vibius were among his accusers, and claimed with eager rivalry the privilege of conducting the case for the prosecution, till Vibius, as they would not yield one to the other, and Libo had entered without counsel, offered to state the charges against him singly, and produced an extravagantly absurd accusation, according to which Libo had consulted persons whether he would have such wealth as to be able to cover the Appian Road as far as Brundisium with money. There were other questions of the same sort, quite senseless and idle, if leniently regarded, pitiable. But there was one paper in Libo's handwriting, so the prosecutor alleged, with the names of Caesars and of Senators, to which marks were affixed of dreadful or mysterious significance. When the accused denied this, it was decided that his slaves, who recognized the writing, should be examined by torture. As an ancient statute of the Senate forbade such inquiry in a case affecting a master's life, Tiberius, with his cleverness in devising new law, ordered Libo's slaves to be sold singly to the state agent, so that, forsooth, without an infringement of the Senate's decree, Libo might be tried on their evidence. As a consequence, the defendant asked an adjournment till next day, and having gone home he charged his kinsman, Publius Quirinus, with his last prayer to the emperor. The answer was that he should address himself to the Senate. Meanwhile his house was surrounded with soldiers. They crowded noisily even about the entrance, so that they could be heard and seen. When Libo, whose anguish drove him from the very banquet he had prepared as his last gratification, called for a minister of death, grasped the hands of his slaves, and thrust a sword into them. In their confusion, as they shrank back, they overturned the lamp on the table at his side, and in the darkness, now to him the gloom of death, he aimed two blows at a vital part. At the groans of the falling man his freedmen hurried up, and the soldiers, seeing the bloody deed, stood aloof. Yet the prosecution was continued in the Senate with the same persistency, and Tiberius declared on oath that he would have interceded for his life, guilty though he was, but for his hasty suicide. His property was divided among his accusers, and praetorships out of the usual order were conferred on those who were of senator's rank. Cotta Messalinus then proposed that Libo's bust should not be carried in the funeral procession of any of his descendants, and Cnaeus Lentulus that no Scribonius should assume the surname of Drusus. Days of public thanksgiving were appointed on the suggestion of Pomponius Flaccus. Offerings were given to Jupiter, Mars, and Concord, and the thirteenth day of September, on which Libo had killed himself, was to be observed as a festival on the motion of Gallus Asinius, Papius Mutilus, and Lucius Apronius. I have mentioned the proposals and sycophancy of these men in order to bring to light this old standing evil in the state.
decrees of the senate were also passed to expel from italy astrologers and magicians one of their number lucius pituanius was hurled from the rock another publius martius was executed according to ancient custom by the consuls outside the esquiline gate after the trumpets had been bidden to sound on the next day of the senate's meeting much was said against the luxury of the country by quintus haterius an ex-consul and by octavius fronto an ex-praetor it was decided that vessels of solid gold should not be made for the serving of food and that men should not disgrace themselves with silken clothing from the east fronto went further and insisted on restrictions being put on plate furniture and household establishments it was indeed still usual with the senators when it was their turn to vote to suggest anything they thought for the state's advantage gallus asinius argued on the other side with the growth of the empire private wealth too he said had increased and there was nothing new in this but it accorded with the fashions of the earliest antiquity riches were one thing with the fabricii quite another with the scipios the state was the standard of everything when it was poor the homes of the citizens were humble when it reached such magnificence private grandeur increased in household establishments and plate and in whatever was provided for use there was neither excess nor parsimony except in relation to the fortune of the possessor a distinction had been made in the assessments of senators and knights not because they differed naturally but that the superiority of the one class in places in the theatre in rank and in honour might be also maintained in everything else which ensured mental repose and bodily recreation unless indeed men in the highest position were to undergo more anxieties and more dangers and to be at the same time deprived of all solace under those anxieties and dangers gallus gained a ready assent under these specious phrases by a confession of failings with which his audience sympathized and tiberius too had added that this was not a time for censorship and that if there were any declension in manners a promoter of reform would not be wanting during this debate lucius piso after exclaiming against the corruption of the courts the bribery of judges the cruel threats of accusations from hired orators declared that he would depart and quit the capital and that he meant to live in some obscure and distant rural retreat at the same moment he rose to leave the senate house tiberius was much excited and though he pacified piso with gentle words he also strongly urged his relatives to stop his departure by their influence or their entreaties soon afterwards this same piso gave an equal proof of a fearless sense of wrong by suing urgulania whom augustus friendship had raised above the law neither did urgulania obey the summons for in defiance of piso she went in her litter to the emperor's house nor did piso give way though augusta complained that she was insulted and her majesty slighted 
Tiberius, to win popularity by so humouring his mother as to say that he would go to the praetor's court and support Urgulania, went forth from the palace, having ordered soldiers to follow him at a distance. He was seen, as the people thronged about him, to wear a calm face, while he prolonged his time on the way with various conversations, till at last, when Piso's relatives tried in vain to restrain him, Augusta directed the money which was claimed to be handed to him. This ended the affair, and Piso, in consequence, was not dishonoured, and the emperor rose in reputation. Urgulania's influence, however, was so formidable to the state that in a certain cause which was tried by the Senate she would not condescend to appear as a witness. The praetor was sent to question her at her own house, although the Vestal Virgins, according to ancient custom, were heard in the courts before judges whenever they gave evidence. I should say nothing of the adjournment of public business in this year, if it were not worth while to notice the conflicting opinions of Cnaeus Piso and Asinius Gallus on the subject. Piso, although the emperor had said that he would be absent, held that all the more ought the business to be transacted, that the state might have honour of its senate and knights being able to perform their duties in the sovereign's absence. Gallus, as Piso had forestalled him in the display of freedom, maintained that nothing was sufficiently impressive or suitable to the majesty of the Roman people unless done before Caesar and under his very eyes, and that therefore the gathering from all Italy and the influx from the provinces ought to be reserved for his presence. Tiberius listened to this in silence, and the matter was debated on both sides in a sharp controversy. The business, however, was adjourned. A dispute then arose between Gallus and the Emperor. Gallus proposed that the elections of magistrates should be held every five years, and that the commanders of the legions, who before receiving a praetorship discharged this military service, should at once become praetors elect, the Emperor nominating twelve candidates every year. It was quite evident that this motion had a deeper meaning and was an attempt to explore the secrets of imperial policy. Tiberius, however, argued as if his power would be thus increased. It would, he said, be trying to his moderation to have to elect so many and to put off so many. He scarcely avoided giving offence from year to year, even though a candidate's rejection was solaced by the near prospect of office. What hatred would be incurred from those whose election was deferred for five years? How could he foresee through so long an interval what would be a man's temper, or domestic relations, or estate? Men became arrogant even with this annual appointment. What would happen if their thoughts were fixed on promotion for five years? It was, in fact, a multiplying of the magistrates fivefold, and a subversion of the laws which had prescribed proper periods for the exercise of the candidate's activity and the seeking or securing office. With this seemingly conciliatory speech, he retained the substance of power. 
he also increased the incomes of some of the senators. Hence it was the more surprising that he listened somewhat disdainfully to the request of Marcus Hortulus, a youth of noble rank in conspicuous poverty. He was the grandson of the orator Hortensius, and had been induced by Augustus, on the strength of a gift of a million sesterces, to marry and rear children, that one of our most illustrious families might not become extinct. Accordingly, with his four sons standing at the doors of the senate-house, the senate then sitting in the palace, when it was his turn to speak, he began to address them as follows, his eyes fixed now on the statue of Hortensius, which stood among those of the orators, now on that of Augustus. Senators, these whose numbers and boyish years you behold, I have reared, not by my own choice, but because the emperor advised me. At the same time my ancestors deserved to have descendants. For myself, not having been able in these altered times to receive or acquire wealth or popular favour, or that eloquence which has been the hereditary possession of our house, I was satisfied if my narrow means were neither a disgrace to myself nor burden to others. At the Emperor's bidding I married. Behold the offspring and progeny of a succession of consuls and dictators. Not to excite odium do I recall such facts, but to win compassion. While you prosper, Caesar, they will attain such promotion as you shall bestow. Meanwhile save from penury the great-grandsons of Quintus Hortensius, the foster-children of Augustus. The Senate's favourable bias was an incitement to Tiberius to offer prompt opposition, which he did in nearly these words. If all poor men begin to come here and to beg money for their children, individuals will never be satisfied and the state will be bankrupt. Certainly our ancestors did not grant the privilege of occasionally proposing amendments or of suggesting, in our turn for speaking, something for the general advantage, in order that we might in this house increase our private business and property, thereby bringing odium on the Senate and on emperors, whether they concede or refuse their bounty. In fact, it is not a request, but an importunity, as utterly unreasonable as it is unforeseen, for a senator, when the House has met on other matters, to rise from his place, and, pleading the number and age of his children, put a pressure on the delicacy of the Senate, then transfer the same constraint to myself, and, as it were, break open the exchequer, which, if we exhaust it by improper favouritism, will have to be replenished by crimes. Money was given you, Hortulus, by Augustus, but without solicitation, and not on the condition of its being always given. Otherwise industry will languish, and idleness be encouraged, if a man has nothing to fear, nothing to hope from himself, and every one in utter recklessness will expect relief from others, thus becoming useless to himself, and a burden to me. 
These and like remarks, though listened to with assent by those who make it a practice to eulogize everything coming from sovereigns, both good and bad, were received by the majority in silence or with suppressed murmurs. Tiberius perceived it, and, having paused a while, said that he had given Hortilus his answer, but that if the senators thought it right, he would bestow two hundred thousand sesterces on each of his children of the male sex. The others thanked him. Hortilus said nothing, either from alarm or because even in his reduced fortunes he clung to his hereditary nobility. Nor did Tiberius afterwards show any pity, though the house of Hortensius sank into shameful poverty. That same year the daring of a single slave, had it not been promptly checked, would have ruined the state by discord and civil war. A servant of Posthumus Agrippa, Clemens by name, having ascertained that Augustus was dead, formed a design beyond a slave's conception of going to the island of Planasia and seizing Agrippa by craft or force and bringing him to the armies of Germany. The slowness of a merchant vessel thwarted his bold venture. Meanwhile the murder of Agrippa had been perpetrated, and then, turning his thoughts to a greater and more hazardous enterprise, he stole the ashes of the deceased, sailed to Cosa, a promontory of Etruria, and there hid himself in obscure places till his hair and beard were long. In age and figure he was not unlike his master. Then, through suitable emissaries who shared his secret, it was rumoured that Agrippa was alive, first in whispered gossip, soon, as is usual with forbidden topics, in vague talk which found its way to the credulous ears of the most ignorant people, or of restless and revolutionary schemers. He himself went to the towns as the day grew dark, without letting himself be seen publicly, or remaining long in the same places. But, as he knew that truth gains strength by notoriety and time, falsehood by precipitancy and vagueness, he would either withdraw himself from publicity, or else forestall it. It was rumoured meanwhile throughout Italy, and was believed at Rome, that Agrippa had been saved by the blessing of heaven. Already at Ostia, where he had arrived, he was the centre of interest to a vast concourse, as well as to secret gatherings in the capital, while Tiberius was distracted by the doubt whether he should crush this slave of his by military force, or allow time to dissipate a silly credulity. Sometimes he thought that he must overlook nothing, sometimes that he need not be afraid of everything, his mind fluctuating between shame and terror. At last he entrusted the affair to Celestius Crispus, who chose two of his dependents, some say they were soldiers, and urged them to go to him as pretended accomplices, offering money and promising faithful companionship in danger. They did as they were bidden, then, waiting for an unguarded hour of night, they took with them a sufficient force, and, having bound and gagged him, dragged him to the palace. 
When Tiberius asked him how he had become Agrippa, he is said to have replied, As you became Caesar. He could not be forced to divulge his accomplices. Tiberius did not venture on a public execution, but ordered him to be slain in a private part of the palace, and his body to be secretly removed. And although many of the emperor's household and knights and senators were said to have supported him with their wealth and helped him with their counsels, no inquiry was made. At the close of the year was consecrated an arch near the temple of Saturn, to commemorate the recovery of the standards lost with Varus under the leadership of Germanicus and the auspices of Tiberius, a temple of Fors Fortuna by the Tiber in the gardens which Caesar the dictator bequeathed to the Roman people, a chapel to the Julian family, and statues at Bovilli to the divine Augustus. In the consulship of Gaius Sicilius and Lucius Pomponius, Germanicus Caesar, on the twenty-sixth day of May, celebrated his triumph over the Cherusci, Chatti, and Angriverii, and the other tribes which extend as far as the Elbe. There were born in procession spoils, prisoners, representations of the mountains, the rivers, and battles, and the war, seeing that he had been forbidden to finish it, was taken as finished. The admiration of the beholders was heightened by the striking comeliness of the general and the chariot which bore his five children. Still there was a latent dread when they remembered how unfortunate in the case of Drusus his father had been the favour of the crowd, how his uncle Marcellus, regarded by the city populace with passionate enthusiasm, had been snatched from them while yet a youth and how short-lived and ill-starred were the attachments of the Roman people. End of Book Two, Part Two Recording by Graham Redmond